0: Welcome uh, everyone to the Guardians of the Flame podcast and um, we are really privileged to be up in uh, the beautiful city of Derry Londonderry on the north coast of Ireland, north coast of Northern Ireland, um, whichever way you want to describe it uh, and um, uh, I'm, while we're here we're interviewing a few different people uh, and we're going to release these podcasts over a few weeks and so I'm not sure what order they're all going to come in. Um, But today, we're really privileged to have two very special people, Kathleen Gillespie and Ann Walker. Um, And uh, I was involved with Stephen Travers, Eugene Reavy, Alan McBride, I think, in a Truth and Reconciliation platform event in Lurgan a couple of years ago. And Kathleen spoke there. And she told her story, and I just remember, I was meant to be chairing the thing, and I was you know, trying to hold back the tears and, you know, just keep it all together and look like I was a professional, you know. Uh, But I was very moved that day, Kathleen, and I thought one day I've got to be able to get hold of her again and, you know, get an an interview with her. So as we were organizing this, Kathleen said, you've got to get my friend Dan and and then I'd heard, in fact, I'd heard your story as well. And then so we're delighted to have the two of you. Um, We're going to hear their story and let them tell it in a a sense. Usually, I do lots of questions, etc. Today, there'll be a few questions, but really, I just want to hear you both tell your story. You don't have any trouble kind of getting it out there. And you know, you're good at just sharing what's what's happened and sharing it in a way that I think gives a lot of healing to a lot of people. So it's a real privilege to be here in Derry and it's a privilege to be with you both. So thanks for letting us come. Thank you. So could you just for a wee start, just maybe both of you just introduce yourselves and uh uh kind of where you're from a little bit and then I'll go and ask Kathleen more in depth about your past. So
1: well, very briefly, uh as you've heard, my name's Kathleen Gillespie and um I live in Derry and I call it Derry. <laughs> 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 those those in the know will know the difference. Um I was married to Patsy Gillespie for 20 years. We had three children and uh, he, just very briefly, he was employed as a civilian worker by the Ministry of Defence in Derry and uh, he worked in a a local army camp in the kitchens and he was targeted by the IRA. He was kidnapped from our home. We were left uh, being held hostage at gunpoint and he was chained to a van and used as a human bomb. That's that's basically what my story is built around, mm-hmm. which we'll go into more depth about mm-hmm. later.
0: Yeah. And uh, we'll, we'll go into the story in more depth. But it is uh, I think it's one of the, yeah one of those most tragic events of the Troubles. And so thanks, Kathleen, for giving us your time and letting us kind of okay. dig into that real painful time. You're welcome. Um, and tell Hi. us briefly um, your background.
2: So briefly, my name is Anne Walker. I'm from Derry. Um, when I was three years old, my uncle was killed on Bloody Sunday, and my parents brought myself and my sister back home from Wales. Um, then, following that, we grew up through the worst of the troubles in the Bogside, um, and at the age of eighteen, I was approached and asked to join the IRA, mm. and that's what I did. Mm. Um, years later, well, a couple of years later, my involvement would dissipate, and my life would change, mm. um, and. I talk about life, sort of, I say there's, there's two beginnings because that was my initial beginning, mm-hmm. but I got involved in a Theatre of Witness project ten years ago. My life completely changed again. Mm-hmm. And we'll go into that more in depth where I met mm-hmm. this woman who has mm-hmm. become one of my best friends, mm-hmm. um, but that's, that's brief and we'll go into it yeah. a bit more.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we also interviewed James Greer that uh, we may be releasing it after. I'm not sure what order we're going to release it, but all three of you, I think, have stories that uh, bring healing, you know, uh, to other people. Uh, so it's just really moving to be able to listen to them. Um, so Kathleen, why don't we start with you and um, hearing um, hearing the story. Your, your husband, um, Patsy, uh, had a, you know, um, uh, was murdered in a really a horrendous way. But I loved when I heard you th- two years ago tell your story. You know, you had a lovely relationship, obviously. Um, can yeah. you tell us about how you met your relationship together and then, of course, the events of his death and what happened with that?
1: Well, um, I, was, uh, I, I lost interest. I met Patsy when I was 16 mm. and I knew the minute I met him that I, I wanted Patsy, and normally I get what I want, <laughs> and I did. Uh, we got engaged when I was 17, but uh, we didn't get married until I was 20. It took me three years to walk him up the aisle. Now, but uh, very happy marriage. I mean, 20 years, and we, we actually had four children. Our first baby was a full-term stillbirth, which was just devastating, mm. really devastating, because I just thought... Uh, you get married and you get pregnant and you started your family and that's all I ever wanted in life Mm. never wanted a career just forgot about my education uh, and just wanted to get married and have my own family so ended up then having three more children who are grown up now and uh, I have six grandchildren Uh, Patsy had his own business at the time it was a mobile fruit and vegetable van and was doing quite well financially but then people started cutting in and cutting in and eventually he decided that it, it, it wasn't feasible anymore. So he really didn't have any qualifications for a, a job, a trained, you know, a trained job, but there was they were working for civil looking for civilian workers in the local army camps. So Patsy applied for a job there and he got a job in the kitchen. And then eventually uh well there was a bit, there was secrecy attached to that. It's like uh when they say we we kept your secrets um you didn't go out and you didn't say I'm working in the army camp you, you you didn't do that. So that restricted your social life as well. But uh it was a good life. We had a good life, Patsy. It was a well-paid job. We had a good standard of living and um Patsy wasn't a a man who went out at night. I I used to say to him, why don't you get yourself a hobby? Why don't you start playing snooker or darts or something? But he was content to stay in with the kids and let me go and do my keep fit. Mm -hmm. That was my forte at the time, Mm -hmm. four nights a week, keep Mm -hmm. fit. So Patsy babysit it and it was great and, you know, we had a good life. Can I just
0: ask, maybe just make one comment? Because probably about half the people who listen to this aren't from here you know maybe live overseas and just to kind of clarify our kind of conflict if you like in this country was um was a british irish conflict i suppose british usually saw themselves as protestants catholics saw themselves as irish um so the army the british army would tend to have not been supported by the catholic population and so what your husband was doing was kind of dangerous for him in a sense or It was uh, unusual for a a Catholic person to be doing that.
1: Yeah, it was a dangerous occupation. Uh, Eventually, the paramilitary started putting uh, warnings in the local media for civilian workers that, uh, you know, just if you don't stop working here, this is going to happen to you, that's going to happen to you. Uh, Patsy ignored them. Patsy uh, didn't have any trade. He had no other way to earn a living. And he, he was keeping his family. And that's the only reason he was working there. And he decided that he wasn't going to let the IRA dictate to him how he would live his life and what he would have to do with it and how he was going to rear his own wings. So uh, he just, he ignored the warnings in the, in the media. Um, we had one incident four years actually before his death where our house was taken over. And we were held hostage and Patsy was forced to drive our car loaded with 200 pounds of explosives into the camp where he worked. Now, he, he wasn't stopped going in the gate. They just opened the gate and let him in when they saw the car coming because he was a, a worker there. What happened at that time was that uh, he, was, he drove the car into a, a safety place, jumped out of the car and shouted to the army, you know, I'm loaded boys, I'm loaded. Uh, meaning that there was a bomb in the car. So they they detonated the the bomb in the car. Nobody was hurt. And Patsy was questioned and then he was taken home in the early hours of the morning. So when this second incident happened, we you sort of thought it was nearly the same thing was going to happen. And uh when when the men were staying with me and the children in the house It was actually happened on our eldest son's 18th birthday and he was living in london at the time he went to london to earn money to buy himself a car because out of necessity we were running two cars i used the family car patsy had an old heap of a car that he drove on and out to work every day that we weren't allowed into uh because for safety reasons so my son wanted a car so he went to london i had a sister living in london and he was living with with her. But my other two children were there and um, we were held hostage at gunpoint while Patsy was taken away. Now, I questioned them constantly because I felt guilty that I hadn't noticed a lot of fine details four years previous to that about the men who were in the house. So I told them I knew everything, what you could see and whatever. And I kept questioning them and they told me and I was foolish enough to believe them. If you do exactly as you're told, nobody's going to get hurt and your husband will get home. And I thought, oh, that's all right. So we lost the car the last time. What odds mm. It's only a car. If they blow up the car, that's mm. okay. But, um, well, that's not actually what happened. You know, they, um, they took my husband over the border, past the checkpoint where there were soldiers that he was working with. And... Um, obviously we, Patsy would have been waved on in the car because the car was recognised as his car and uh, he was waved on. They took him to, um, we'll say, a safe house over the border and they chained him to a van which contained £1,200 of explosives and he was forced to drive the van to the army checkpoint at Cush Quinn. Uh, he was... Uh, he told me the last time that they uh, kept reminding him that there were people with guns with his family. And if he didn't do what he was told that the family would be injured. So we take it for granted because he's not there to tell us that he was told the same again, do what you're told because there's people with guns in your family. And he was forced to drive the car, the van, into the army checkpoint at Kaush where it was detonated by remote control. Patsy and five soldiers were blown to pieces. Uh, I have evidence from the surviving soldiers that Patsy actually saved men that night because he shouted, he shouted to them, run, boys, run. That's not the exact words he used. He was, he was very good at using the F word. So it was run to mm. unloaded I'm mm. loaded. So get out, get out. And they, they ran. Mm. And that's what happened. He was... Um, five soldiers uh well i've heard the evidence of the policeman who was in charge of the clear up and he said that there were five there were men in a land rover and when they opened the door of the land rover there was nobody there they had been evaporated and mm-hmm. sucked out of the wee viewing thing mm-hmm. so there was nothing left so i have i had nothing to recognize recognize and identify patsy from Mm. but uh the soldier the the policeman who was in charge talks in his testimony uh about uh lifting a stone and fighting a human heart Mm. and fighting a bum cheek Mm. and just lifting it and putting it in the bag lifting Mm. and putting it back and
0: Mm. he obviously um loved you greatly your husband patsy i can imagine um the horror of being realising his family was it being held at gunpoint and um, it was actually
1: four hours before four he was taken hours. away until wow. the explosion wow.
0: um and uh and what was the days after that like kathleen for you was it
1: well because i had no evidence of patsy's no. death uh they were bits of bodies and and, and there was five soldiers in patsy mm-hmm. That's how many bodies mm-hmm. that you had to account for. And because there was no evidence, when the, when the detectives took me to Elton Galvin to the mortuary, I thought they were taking me to identify Patsy because mm-hmm. I said to them outside, is there anybody you know, allowed to come in with me when I'm identifying Patsy's body? And he just looked at me and he says, Kathleen, the coffin's closed. There's nothing to identify. And that's, that's, that was mm-hmm. three days later. And, um, it hadn't actually sunk into me that I had nothing to see mm. that I could never for the rest of my life, picture mm. Patsy in his coffin mm. and, beca- and it leaves me that it's very difficult to me mm. for me to go into uh, a wake house as we call it, where the coffin and the body are on display. It's mm. difficult for me to do that because I feel very envious of those people who can look in at their husband and say, well, now I know you're gone and I have to get my head around that and come to terms with it. I didn't have that. Mm. So I still thought that maybe Patsy had escaped, Mm. Mm. you know, and I talk about that in the production that we did where I um, I just thought Patsy was out there and hiding somewhere. And someday I would get a phone call because I packed bags for myself and the three kids and Mm. kept them. Mm -hmm. Ready to run Mm -hmm. whenever I got the phone call from Patsy. Come and get come come and live here. I'm in Mm -hmm. Australia, I'm in Canada, I'm wherever. Mm -hmm. So I just thought that that, that's what's going to happen sometime. And it took me until the inquest. When I heard uh, the story of the soldiers and the policemen who were on on duty Mm -hmm. that day when I heard them talking about body bags and I Mm -hmm. thought. They're talking about Patsy. Mm -hmm. So Mm. that's when I started to realize that I was never going to see Betsy Mm. again. Mm. And it's it's difficult to say. And I was worried about the children Mm. because I thought, you know, how are they going to cope Mm. without their daddy there? Because, you know, he was a good father to them and Mm. they loved him dearly. And. uh, I remember having to having to try and get in contact with my son, who was living in London, Mm. and uh, he my my sister's partner it was his birthday and his friends from work were taking him out on a pub crawl after mm-hmm. work. and the night before patsy had said to him on the phone don't get too drunk so, mm-hmm. you know 18 mm-hmm. and you're legal <laughs> that's not to say mm-hmm. he wasn't drinking before mm-hmm. that but he was legal mm-hmm. but uh whenever i eventually got him on the phone and asked him to come home mm-hmm. and had to and he, he refused to come home until i told him why and uh when i had to tell him on the phone that they'd murdered his daddy. Mm. Um, uh, uh, this is very difficult for me. Uh, I can still hear my son uh, shouting down the phone, mm. I'll murder those bastards. Mm. And um, when he came home and then I had to contend with, with them. Now, mm. he was 18, my other son was 16, my daughter was 12. So uh, they weren't wee babies that needed me to mm. all their attention all the time mm. so um i was f- finding counselors for them and being things,
0: strong for them
1: trying and... to be strong for them and i remember somebody saying to me while well, the counselors are counseling them who's mm. counseling you mm. and i said, oh i'm all right i can i'm sorting them out you know mm. but uh there were a couple of times that i locked <laughs> myself in the bedroom with a box of paracetamol mm. mm. until sense took over, common sense took over and said they've lost their daddy. How can they lose their mummy as well? Mm. So we moved on from there.
0: Yeah, I heard you um, tell the story once about the, your husband's gravestone and, and what you put on it. What was that?
1: Yeah. Well, when I was looking for a gravestone for Patsy, you can imagine that uh, the anger and the hatred that I felt towards the people who committed this crime. Mm. And I just wanted to write on it, uh, murdered by the IRA. Mm. I wanted the whole world to know, if they looked at the headstone, that it was the IRA responsible for, for what happened to him. But instead, um, I wrote on it, uh, Lord, may he be an instrument of your peace. Mm. And uh, that that's my prayer now. If there's any good. I'm not condoning Patsy's mm. death by no mm. means. But if there's any good has Mm. come out of it, I have had proof over the 30 years when I'm talking to people and. uh, Just listening to them talking and especially when I'm talking about uh, forgiveness, Mm. because I don't have forgiveness Mm. and I don't ever intend Mm. to try to have forgiveness. Um, When I listen to people, people who come to me and say, you know, we, we thought um, one workshop in particular that Anne and I were both doing and this foreign lady at the back of the room cried and cried mm. and cried the whole, way, the whole way through it. And I went down there her afterwards and I said, Are you okay? You know, mm. have I said something to mm. upset you mm. or is there anything I can do to mm. help you? Mm. And she said, You have set me free. Mm. And she said, In my religion, mm. uh, she was a Palestinian girl working in Israel. That's right. Aye. And she found it really
2: difficult with the situation that was going on to have mm. forgiveness for mm. uh, for the mm. f- yeah. for what was happening to for her people. But she was in a situation where she was working. So when mm. she was there in that foreign mm. mission and it was very moving, she, she mm. you watched her and we couldn't start of wait it was over to so we went down and mm. make sure she was all right. Mm. But that's what she said because yeah. you talked about not forgiving yeah. them.
1: Mm. And in her religion, they were told Mm. that more or less what we would say, if you you have to forgive to get into heaven Mm. type of thing, Mm. you know, you have to you have to learn to forgive. Mm. And she felt that her life, that she was uh, doomed to forever Mm. living Mm. in hell type Mm. type of thing, Mm. because Because she she, couldn't from her heart. She could mm. say
2: she could easily say the words, but she knew in her heart that she she didn't, Mm.
1: that's right. Mm.
2: And I think uh, on the thing of forgiveness, when you do that, when you say that about that forgiveness thing i remember one time because i i know that it, there was times when people thought god that's harsh mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. but i remember one time somebody said to Callie, what if what if one of them came to your door and knocked at your door and says kelly it was me i was there what would you do and Callie says Let's bring him in sit him down get him a cup of tea mm-hmm. get out the best <laughs> or a wee bun or something and say mm-hmm. well, what did you do it for mm-hmm. and it's that thing yeah. about
0: mm-hmm.
2: about forgiveness where where it is such a, a whole other conversation. Oh, yeah. It is such mm. a big thing, mm. and it's a personal and it's thing. individual. Yeah. And James touched on it earlier. Mm. What we really want to be able to do is to understand. Mm. And for me personally, when I came into this, I'll, I'll tell you my story. I didn't come into this for forgiveness. It wasn't about mm. me and me looking mm. for forgiveness, or any of the other participants for that matter. But I think. When you understand, a that need to know why, and yes. then when you can build up a relationship, then the forgiveness part of it goes mm-hmm. out of the equation, and the human part of it comes out. Right you know, well, it but se- you I think do, if uh,
0: it's, uh, it seems like if forgiveness is a word, like like you're describing that lady that you met in the Middle East, you know, uh, then it's not a helpful word. Doesn't bring much healing. It's kind of almost. Yeah. Adding so, more pain the word to the forgiveness situation.
2: is a cultural word and it's a religious mm-hmm. word and it can be used to hold us the ransom mm-hmm. to heaven or hell but i think uh, you, yeah yeah uh, and uh, whenever we think that we have to mm-hmm. be that person that mm-hmm. forgiven person or have to give forgiveness mm-hmm. as i say you can say the words according to your culture or your religion mm-hmm. or whatever
1: i don't even say yeah. the words
2: but if mm. you can't feel it, feel it from your heart, mm. then you're lying to yourself. Mm. Yeah. And I think there, if, forgiveness is a whole other podcast, mm. right? Mm. But I think there has to be a process, an understanding, relationship. And when you're in relationship with somebody, like myself and Kathleen, have been in relationship for the past ten, 10 years, years yeah. um, then that that goes out of the equation, mm. Mm. and humanity comes in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so but I love to say, I love yeah, that story about yeah, Kelly, saying yeah. bring him in, give him a cup of tea yes, and ask him why. Uh, yeah. well, For me, so that human, was more yeah.
1: powerful than... Yeah, yeah. well, well it really would. I would love to hear it from somebody who was mm-hmm. involved in my husband's death. Mm-hmm. I would love to hear why they thought that was an okay thing to do. Mm-hmm. Why? Wh- how can anybody just sit down around a table and plan such a horrific thing against another human being? And I keep thinking, especially against a good human being, why are all the bad people alive and the good people are dead? You know, bad things happen to them. How can they condone that? How can they think it's okay to chain this man to a, a van and him knowing that he's, he's going to die? And he was he had four hours from he left the house. He took him away at midnight and the explosion was at four o'clock. And I think of uh, those four hours as his purgatory because to get over the border, uh, the people in the car with him must have had to take their masks off. So from that moment, this is only my way of thinking. From that moment on, he must have known, I'm going to die, I'm not getting out of this because I can recognize these people. So uh, he had another four hours of that, wondering, how are they going to kill me? What are they going to do? Like. I know now that they couldn't hurt him physically because they needed him to do this work for them. Mm -hmm. So it couldn't be physical, but the mental, the mental. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, I remember, uh, talking to, um, Holy Father about this four hours. I said, it just tears me up wondering what he was going through in that four hours mentally. And he said, uh, you look on that as his purgatory and he went straight to heaven. He went straight up and he says, so will you, because you've been through it as well. And so, um, mm. I've had it from a Holy Father mm. that I'm going straight down. <laughs> so I <I'm> fine. Mm. <laughs> but, uh, do you know, there's, this? There's, there's just, as Anne says this, mm. bring a man, sit him down and ask him why. Mm. I would yeah. love somebody to tell me.
0: Yeah. Thanks Kathleen for, uh, telling your story. Um, yeah, I'm just reminded thinking of about your husband in those four hours. I remember reading a book um, quite a long time ago, Victor Frankel. He was in he was a uh, Holocaust survivor, and talked about one day having to do this horrible march and, but uh, through the snow and armed guards and and on the march he started his friend was walking with him said, "Do you think about your wife?" And he said, "Yeah." And then he started to think about his wife, and he said, for the next. Several hours as he walked, all he could think about was his love for his wife. You know, so I can imagine your husband. You know, was uh, you know a loving guy. Probably in those hours was was really en- encountering a, a real depth of uh, of love for you. I'm sure. You know, mm. and uh, and I think your story as you share it is uh, it's it's honest and it's human and it's and as you said, I think it can be very healing to people. So thanks yeah. for for sharing that, Kathleen. You're welcome. Yeah. And Anne, um, tell us your story. Tell us, that. I've heard it a couple of times in different formats and it's also very moving. Um.
2: Um, well, I say, I have two, two beginnings. And one of them was 10 years ago when I met Kathleen through the Theatre of Witness. Um, but originally, whenever I talk about my uncle being killed on Bloody Sunday and that my parents brought me and my sister home from Wales, the reason that we were in Wales was because my father was serving in the British Army, he was in the RAF, mm-hmm. which wasn't unusual at the time because there was no work. So a lot of people from both sides of the divide were friends and brothers working in the British Army or the RAF, as my daddy was. Um, and what when we talk about the British Irish thing and the Catholic Protestant thing, during civil rights, it wasn't such a strong case of that. People stood together, no matter what religion, they stood together fighting for housing, fighting for better jobs, fighting for equality, fighting to work at home. So it wasn't unusual, but it, again, it was a, a difficult time. My mama lost her brother, and we were supposed to be getting stationed in Hong Kong. So my mama loses her brother, and I remember the airplane ride home. I remember coming into my granny's house, and the house being filled with people, and there being a sadness, but our relatives and our aunts and our uncles, making a fuss of us, um, and then after that, everything was about the troubles. It was 1972, what I don't remember is it must have been horrific for my mummy and daddy, hearing the news in Wales, coming home in the plane. We got into a car in Belfast and drove to Derry, my uncle came to collect us, so it was me, my mummy, my daddy, my sister, three uncles in the car, driving home to this news. Um, And then we lived in my granny's house the rest mm. of that year. My mum and daddy managed to get a house three streets away. So instead of being a military kid growing up in Hong Kong and, and everything that went with that, not only my future changed, but my parents' future changed. Everything, everything changed. Mm. Um, grew up in the bog side through the worst of the troubles, through the hunger strikes. Was it more funerals? so that was my formative years and during those years as well my mother became sort of the rock of the family what happens to have most families when somebody is lost like that is especially my mommy's family was a big family so a couple of brothers became alcoholics when the sisters became an alcoholic there was divisions in the family political there was republicans there's people who were apolitical so mm. but I, I remember a great childhood mm. because there was a lot of us and a lot of cousins and mm. friends and but I also remember the raids, the guns, mm. the bombs, the being pulled in from the street because things were getting too dangerous, mm. being woken up to an explosion outside the house and coming up out to the street and looking down the street and seeing all the neighbours and up the street and seeing all the neighbours mm. and the bomb squad. Who had Was it the
0: Bug bog side? At the Bug side. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: But the, the bomb squad had detonated mm. a, a suspicious vehicle that was mm. outside our front door, oh. and they cleared the whole street but left us in there. My um, mommy shaking the glass off, my young brother. Going to Bloody Sunday marches every year, being stopped every day. And during those house raids, my mommy got arrested out of the house one morning, my daddy got arrested out of the house another morning. That was normal. That was normal life. Mm-hmm. Um, I hear people now talking about the many times they're stopped by the police because they're a certain colour, they're a certain Mm -hmm. religion Mm -hmm. and it takes me back to those days and I think wow they could stop six times Mm -hmm. a year, Mm could stop six times a week (laughs) and I actually feel guilty for thinking that because I wouldn't wish that Mm -hmm. kind of life on anybody Mm -hmm. and I suppose between the hunger strikes and all the funerals and the deaths and neighbours dying and people going to jail, visiting the jails, and that was my normality. Um, My mummy got involved in a group when I was a young teenager called Silent Too Long, and it was about getting justice for victims of the troubles, no matter what side of the divide they came from. And I suppose it was because there was an organisation out there called Widow's Might that was justice just for police men's widows so these people had come together and started this organization looking for justice and I was the eldest in the family and now my mommy I was brothers and sisters were coming so they ended up six of us and I was the eldest in the family and I was the most responsible the most sensible I had to be the big girl I had to and I was the girl who brought in the teas and the coffees mm-hmm. and what happened with this group silent too long was Families and stories from all over the north mm. came to my mommy's house or came to Derry and went down to the local sort of pilot's row at the time or went to other people's house. And when they came into our house, I was the girl that brought in the teas and the coffees. And that's where I heard the stories that I had never heard on TV or was too young to remember. So I heard the stories of the Bally Murphy families mm. and stuff like that. All of this coming in, absorbing in, and I went to all the marches and all the demonstrations and hunger strikes, funerals, and in the middle of all that I was a massive David Bowie fan, Blondie, Madness. I had my head shaved on one side and hair down. I was a wee bit of a rebel. But at the same time I was also low self-esteem, very unconfident and very quiet, so it was definitely a tug of war with myself all the time. I also was brought up a Catholic and tried to work out how they think right about if something went wrong, how they feel about it, Um, listening to conversations, how they feel about that and still be a good Catholic. I remember being convinced that it was going to hell from an early age. Um, Then one day this fella came and and said something about joining the IRA and I was 18 and uh, I thought he was asking me to help him join. And he said, no, Anne, I'm asking you if you want to join, I'm asking you. And I remember that f- feeling of, oh, my God, no, they want me. This is incredible. And I had this romantic idea of how I would be part of the cause of setting Ireland free. And because at that stage, the only people that I thought were protecting us or believed were protecting us were the provosts. Mm. As far because as I was concerned. The con- read, The yeah. IRA. As far as I was concerned, um, living in the bog side, the provosts were our heroes and protectors, hunger strikers and all that. And we were being oppressed by the British Army, the police, the UDR, all these different loyalist factions. And I had never met a Protestant. Mm. First Protestant I talked to was when I was 18 years old. I thought they all hated us. I also believed that they were all rich and had more trees. Mm. I had these preconceived (laughs) ideas of what Protestant people were. remember asking my daddy one day, why do they hate us so much? My daddy said, well, they believe that the Pope is the Antichrist, so they think that we're all Antichristians. And I remember thinking, God, if I believed the Pope is an Antichrist, I wouldn't like like stay <laughs> there. And trying and to, de- my daddy was always great at looking at both sides or trying to give explanations. My mommy was hard, bitter, angry. She gone through so much and there she was growing up in the bog side trying to bring us up trying to keep us safe trying to trying not to be angry in front of us all the time but always having something to be angry about so i had sort of like both sides of the coin with them too we joined the IRA and thought that's it it's gonna be somebody's gonna listen to me i'm gonna be the answer thought it was gonna save everybody part of my story before that as well i would have stayed in my granny's house a lot um, and me and her would have talked about how we would sort this country out. Mm. Part of my story is that when I was 13 years old, I talked about being responsible and sensible and had to be the big girl all the time. I was too old for me years. I looked older. Um, and when I was 12 years old, I started going out with an 18-year-old boy. Mm. Um, and back then, that was trouble. Now it's really bad, like mm. now. But he showed me a gun when I was 13, as he was would have been involved and in. mm. There's all of these things that that sent me down that road. But what I will say as well, my sister was only a year younger than me, and she experienced all the same stuff that I did, probably being a different personality, that she didn't follow that road. And there's actually studies Mm. as to why this happens in a family, and it's usually the eldest one, the most responsible, Mm. takes on those responsibilities of trying to save and help everybody. Mm um but but that's another study another story for another day <laughs> i digress <laughs> so now i am in the the professional ira i'm sworn in um he, james talked earlier i was assigned to be a quartermaster and thinking that i was saving ireland and saving my people and um quartermaster's
0: and a job what was that what did you have to do then
2: uh, being a quartermaster is moving guns and explosives around and providing the active service units with the, the equipment and the weapons mm. that they needed for mm. for um what's, what's their the right activities word? for their activities. Um, and
1: also safe houses? S-
2: finding safe houses and mm. a bit of training. Um, and mm. I can't I mm. can't really say much more than that. Yeah. Right? Cool. But my um O.C., Officer-in-Command, took an ocean on me. So I spent a lot of that time trying to avoid him because whenever I didn't get to avoid him, Mm. he was sexually harassing and abusing me. Mm. And I was in a situation where I was keeping secrets and couldn't talk to anybody or couldn't tell anybody, and I was a wee bit afraid of him. Mm. And I didn't know how to say no, and it was really difficult um, because it was... It was, was terrible. Mm. It was terrible because I went down thinking we'll get Ireland free and everybody will be able to live in harmony and everything will be okay And there's this boy abusing me. Things are happening, conversations are happening that I'm not agreeing with and I don't have the strength to say it out loud. Mm. I'll get to that in a while. It's like if we were saying to kids now, join the army, right, OK, the reality is something completely different. The, the, the dream. Well, the reality was completely different. Now, I did believe, and I really did believe, that we were doing the right thing at the time. There was all these other factors involved. Then one night they sent me out the an explosives device, um, and that wasn't part of my routine, what I did. But they'd asked us the an explosives device. The, um, there was a, a patrol of eight soldiers and two police that had been keeping their pattern, and we were to go out and set off an explosion that would mm. that would kill them. And, and I had a really bad headache that day, and I really didn't want to do this. If you watch my piece, you'll hear me say, I didn't want to do this, not because my head was sore, but because I had never been directly as a quartermaster. You're not directly mm. involved mm. in having to kill somebody. Um, and when I went down and was waiting on that job, waiting for them to come, I really badly had to go to the bathroom and I was with one other person and he says, well, you better go, we'll do it quick. He didn't think they were coming. I ran to the bathroom and as I was running back to him, this god-awful pain in my head, a really bad pain in my head, and I more or less collapsed. And when I got around to him, it was obvious that I was sick and sore. It was obvious that there was something wrong and he tried to get me to go home, but I wouldn't go home because I was out on a mission with him. Um... Eventually I started throwing up and I remember the pain and he says you better go and he said that he would look after everything, he didn't think they were coming. I walked to the safe house and from the safe house I walked home and we got the doctor out because it was really bad and the doctor thought maybe it was meningitis or maybe it was something. I stayed in bed with my mommy all night and I was throwing up. Every time I moved, I was thrown up. The next morning I went to the hospital and was diagnosed with a brain hemorrhage. Mm. Um, and that was the first brain hemorrhage. The blood clot sealed it, but it reopened again. I ended up needing full brain surgery. I say that God works in mysterious ways and it was one hell of a way to get me out of that situation. If I hadn't had the hemorrhage that night, we probably would have been shot or arrested. The soldiers, and the police were never going to come that night. The operation was informed on. It was informed on to break up the quartermaster unit in the bog along with other units around there. It wasn't long after that that I was arrested and taken into Castle and I had full um, skinhead and scar. Um, And it's funny because in Cassaray is one of those first places where I Mm rehumanized the other. Because Cassaray was very difficult. Mm -hmm. Although they weren't um, physically, they didn't physically harm me. Which I found really weird because I could hear everything that was going on in the other cells. But there was a lot of interviews, lengthy interviews. Six-hour kept me up Mm -hmm. all night, white noise Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But... um,
0: when would this have been, his uh, 90s
2: kind of. uh, Eighty-nine. um yeah, okay. Um, Eighty-nine coming in the actually. Mm. I was getting interviewed in there by uh, a policeman, he was shouting at me for hours and hours and hours. And when he finished shouting at me, he just went, um, right, love, get yourself a good rest, I'll see you in the morning, I remember going. And then it started me thinking wonder when he goes home now, is his wife going to say, Did you have a good day at work? What's he going to say? That <laughs> ah, was grand love. I started thinking about the person he was because he had turned from this policeman interrogating me into, uh. and dear. Then the next thing that happens is Patsy gets killed. Um, and it's like, my stomach hit the ground when I heard the news the next day because I knew that I was part of the organisation that was involved in that. And even though there had been m- many brutal murders over the years and stuff, there was something about Patsy getting chained under a bomb. And I remember being in the kitchen in my mum daddy's house, my own house, and my daddy had his hands on the counter and his head down listening to the news. And I says, Daddy, that's not what we're about, is it? And he says, no, mm-hmm. definitely not. And I was standing, knowing that I was part of the organisation that was involved in this. Anyway, when I was uh, getting interviewed in Castle Ray, and I'm trying to get out as much as possible. Kelly is probably hearing stuff that she hasn't heard before. One of the policemen that interviewed me in Castle Ray started phoning me at home and calling to work. And I was going to my people and saying, listen, this boy's phoning me, looking for me to meet him on the train and go up to Port Rush not going to happen obviously but he's doing this. He's, this boy's arrived outside my work and I tell him they this like they're my people. Then one day I'm sitting in the library where I worked and three big provos come in, IRA men come in, I'm looking at them going jeez what are you doing in here and they come straight up to the desk that I was at and one of them in particular he was very uh, scary but he's two hands on the desk and looked me straight in the businesses if you even think about becoming a farmer, we're going to kill you, plain and simple. Mm. And he walked out, and I was thinking, I wasn't thinking about becoming com- a farmer, but I remember thinking, right, okay, so all the Protestants want me dead. The soldiers want me dead. the Police want me dead. Now my own people want me dead. And all of this stuff, by Patsy and Cassarae and the brain hemorrhage, and at this stage now, all the harassment that I had known all my life, now I'm a suspected terrorist, so that steps up by 20 years mm. and life was just, uh, and that was mm. it. I made a decision then to, to get out. Mm. Um, well, sort of, what I say is my re- or relationship with the organisation dissipated. Because I never said to them, it's me, I'm gone. They never said, that's you, you're out. But there was a number of sort of things that went on that, that meant that maybe I was a liability. So I ended up filling that because whenever all that adrenaline and the madness, madness is gone, just, this mm-hmm. is like, what now? And mm-hmm. I ended up going down the road of drugs and partying mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and eventually because of the constant harassment from the Brits and the police. I remember being stopped. We were talking earlier about Bible and mm-hmm. stuff like that. I remember a Calic policeman being killed in there it was horrific. It was shot in the face. And, um, and I... I panicked a wee bit because I actually thought it was a different Catholic policeman who had been particularly civilised to me. Mm. But the next day after he was shot, I was walking through Derry City and the Guildhall Square. And this policeman came running up to me and he lifted his gun, put it straight under my face, and started shouting at me, those who love by the sword will die by the sword. And I remember thinking, Jeepers, this mm. is why he's the one with the gun like mm-hmm. in my face. And it got too much. It got to a stage where I needed to get out, out, out. And I applied to university in Limerick, moved down to Limerick, met a man, got myself married. Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't the best marriage in the world and it ended up being domestic violence and mental abuse and stuff like that. I came home in 2001 with my son, son, Issa, yeah, Mm -hmm. and... I'm one of those people that everybody thinks, no bother to she can manage this. Mm. Oh, no bother to Anne, she'll get on her feet again. Mm. I didn't know how not to. Because back then it wasn't a case of um, we'll get you some tablets for all that pain mm. you're going through, or we'll get you a, a counsellor back mm. then. It was all, get up off your feet, get on, mate, mm. you'll be grand, or you're responsible, you're sensible, of course. Mm. And so I started again, came back home, started again um, and met a man in two thousand and three, two thousand and four, which is really interesting because this particular boy we talk about connections, is is a connection with a whole lot of us. Mm. He's a yoga teacher and a counsellor. And when I met him that day, I was selling business cards at the time. He said, "Oh, hey, Aunt God, I haven't seen you in ages." And I'm looking at him, thinking, having a clue who this boy is, but he obviously recognised me, and we got into a conversation. He remembered me from visiting the jails, which was something we all sort of did. But I also knew a wee bit about my story because he was ex-IRA. Mm. So he knew who I was. We got into conversations and during conversations with him, we talked about Patsy's death. And he told me that it happened when he was in jail um, and that when he was in his cell and the news came through, he heard prisoners going, hey, we got five soldiers, we got five soldiers. And in his cell, like my stomach sank to the ground. He said, his stomach hit the floor and he's going, what are we doing? What's this about? And he had made a decision that when he got out of jail, that he would turn his life around. He would go down a different path. And in jail, like me, he kept that secret. He kept that feeling inside. But it was the first time I had heard somebody say it out loud. And he was telling me about this peace process he'd got involved in. He was going up and down to Glen Cree. And I was looking at him going, I want some of that.
0: Increase a peace centre. Peace centre. I want double. some of
2: that. But I was too busy mm. trying to set my own life up as a single mm. mother and all the rest. Eventually, he would come to me and say, there's this American girl doing a stage production, Theatre of Witness. And he says, I think you'd be good for her. Mm. Your story would be good for her. Mm-hmm. But I also think it would be good for you. Mm-hmm. And I went along and um, I went along for him. But I realised very quickly that it was something for me. Mm. Um, and it's also where I met Kathleen. Mm. Whenever I went along to this Theatre of Witness, mm. the interviews with Tess mm-hmm. Eppinock, initially I couldn't speak for crying, because all this stuff was coming out. That you had never That really I hadn't ta- you had never talked told about. anybody or very mm-hmm. little people mm-hmm. knew. She actually said to me, I don't think you're strong enough for this. Mm. And then she says to me, and by the way, Kathleen Gillespie's in this production and if she can't work with you, you're out. So I sort of had a mountain to climb then. She started showing me her previous work and I could see the power in it. I could see what it was doing. I could see these ex-prisoners telling their true stories. I could see that this was something they needed to be a part of. And then she invited me to the the documentary of the previous production, We Carried Your Secrets, that James mm-hmm. is in. Mm-hmm. And after i seen that, I thought, right, mm-hmm. I'm gonna be in this. Oh, mm-hmm. The emotions, the need to get all of this out, it was mm-hmm. bursting to come out of me. Um, so eventually she said, okay, you're in. Mm-hmm. And then the day, she did all these individual interviews with all us women. Mm-hmm. There were six of us women. Kathleen Gillespie it was one of them. Seven, was. they
1: seven started off with Eight. Uh, there was uh, there was two d- ended up dropping there was out eight, because there was they. Two, yeah.
2: yeah. Um, but the day that she brought us all together to tell her stories, I was terrified because I knew that in the room there was going to be a servant police woman, I knew that there would be two women from loyalist backgrounds, I knew that Kathleen Gillespie would be in the room, but I also knew that there was a couple other women in the room and one of them was my background, so I thought at least I'll have one ally. I really believed, one, that I didn't have a story to tell, mm. two, that all of these women would hate me. Mm. And Ka-
1: Taya Sebenach sat me beside Kathleen to tell me a story. And I didn't know. Uh, mm. and, and, and and when I'm doing my testimony, I say, I was looking around wondering which one was the IRA woman because I didn't know which mm-hmm. one. She knew who I was, yeah. mm. but I didn't know which one was the IRA woman. So, so she sat me beside Kathleen. And we were all there to
2: tell our stories to each other mm-hmm. because we were going to be doing this mm-hmm. work. And I remember sitting beside Kelly and thinking, jeepers. So I sort of started telling me story and the tears started. But I was Turned telling my story me. like that. <laughs> she was there. And I remember thinking when I'd finished telling what I could of my story, mm-hmm. we were all tearful in the room. It was very emotional. I remember turning to Kelly and thinking, whatever this woman has to say or do, I'm just going to take it. And I turned to Kathleen and she put her arms around me and gave me a big hug, do you remember? And, and I say that you say it's going to be okay, yeah. but you said it's okay. It's the words it's to okay. that effect. And it was just mm. so powerful and emotional. We've been friends and worked together since then. It's and it right. was it was that grace mm. um, that set us up actually for one of the most incredible journeys. Yeah. So I could talk forever about mm. what happened after that mm. because the journey from then... It mm. has been 10 years of incredible work, yeah. locally, UK, mm. Ireland, worldwide, globally. globally. Mm-hmm. We've been everywhere. Um, connections with participants from the mm. other Theatre yeah. of mm. Witness um, mm. productions, working with mm. the Warrington Peace Centre, working with Glen Cree, working with Cora Mullis, setting up our mm. own um, charitable organisation mm. that's about true narratives okay. for peace. Mm.
1: Anne and I um, did... Um, we were invited down to Glen I worked for nine years in Glen Cree. Okay. At a at a group called LIVE, LAV. Okay. Let's Involve the Women's Experiences mm. and uh
2: Victims Experiences. Li-
1: I- yeah. L L A V I, I yeah. Victims L-I-V. Experience there's a- anyway. Mm. Um I went to up and down there for nine years mm. and that's where I did all the mm. training that I have. As I mm. say I could plaster the walls with certificates mm. for doing uh working with groups and, you know, participating and uh, facilitation, facilitation courses, and listening ear uh, courses. courses and, you know, mm. mediation and all that. And I went through all that and worked with all these mm. people. And I met people from I actually met uh, the f- fathers and families of a couple mm. of soldiers okay. who yeah. who died in the bomb mm. with Patsy. Mm. They came over to Glen Cree okay. and I had been working uh, the difference between when Anne and I met was that I had been working. I had mm-hmm. gone through a program mm-hmm. where I we, I worked with ex-parmilitarys down at Glencree. Mm-hmm. They were invited and they did a panel and they did things mm-hmm. like that, and I I was quite accustomed mm-hmm. to working in workshops with ex-parmilitarys mm-hmm. and that.
2: But you weren't so fond of the idea at first.
1: Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. no. But... At first, I ran out of the room. Mm-hmm. And I I shouted at them, how do you expect me to work with these people? How do you expect me to Mm. do this? Mm. Why are you asking me, do I want Mm. to do this? Mm. But then uh, when I went home and thought about it, I thought, well, I mean, I'm the perfect person for a job like Mm. this, you know, and if I can do it, anybody can do it. So if you
2: couldn't do it, why would you expect anybody else to do it? Why would I expect anybody else to
1: do it? So then I got uh, I, I was working there for about I was, it was about, it's 10 years ago and Patsy's dead 30. So it was 20 years I was working among the peace and reconciliation sector. And then I got a phone call inviting me to the premiere of uh, the show that James, James was that in. James we carried your secrets. We carried your secrets. So I went to that and uh, they, they said to me when they phoned, we're asking you to come because they're talking about Patsy's death. Mm. during it and we don't want you out in the town and uh, somebody mm-hmm. stopped and said no, I was at the playhouse last night and they were talking about Patsy's death bring whoever you want with you so I took my sister and my best friend at the mm-hmm. time there and with me and when I saw what these people were up on stage doing mm-hmm. I thought oh my god this is mm-hmm. this is it's mm-hmm. unbelievable what, what they're doing and I just couldn't believe that one woman was the instigator mm-hmm. of all this Kind of magic work. that was going on yeah. do you know what was powerful unbelievable work. powerful so of course as soon as it was over i stood up i first up you know i always was first up at a q a i'm 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 not shy backwards for comfort <laughs> so i stood up <laughs> and um i just said i'm kathleen gillespie i'm patsy gillespie's wife well, well there's all day people there and they kind of all knew who i was anyway <laughs> And I congratulated Taya on what she had done and on the bravery of the people who stood up. Mm. And then I just, when it was all over, I went straight over to Taya. And um, I said that I wanted to talk to one of the participants because he was very upset. And I really wanted to talk to him. And uh, anyway, they, I talked to Taya and she told me that she was going to have uh, a new mm. production. She was looking for six ladies Mm. who are involved Mm. in the troubles and I said, can I please be involved? Can I be involved in this? Mm. So Taya seemingly was very happy Mm. about that. Uh, Once told me after she came into the green room and says, guess who I've got, I have got get Gillespie, you know, and Mm. all this. So that 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 Mm. was encouraging for me. Mm. So I was prepared to meet Anne. But it poor Anne prepared. wasn't prepared to meet <laughs> mm. me. Mm. It's she, yeah. she was terrified to meet yeah. me because yeah. she said what she says uh, that she had heard it was a tough cookie, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's but tough I'm cookie. not. No, I'm soft. No, I'm yeah. soft <laughs>
0: it just seems that two of you um, and even with James earlier that uh, you can hear just the power of story and, and being able to speak things out and often For many people, particularly in places of conflict, there's there's secrets and there's things that you can't tell. And uh, there's something very healing about being able to speak your truth.
2: One of the most important things that's happened over all these years, if you look at the dynamics of myself and Kathleen and you had James, who's ex-UDA on Mm. earlier, and we Mm. work with ex-police, ex-soldiers, ex- ex Paramedics mm. and combatants, mm. victims and survivors mm. from all through the troubles. But if you see us all together in a room sitting around a table chatting, you couldn't say, mm. that's IRA, that's UDA, mm. because all those labels, they're all gone. Mm. Yeah. And each we are in relationship beings, with each other, yeah. we see the human behind. Mm. And that's because of that mm. outpouring of truth mm. and the understanding and recognising the other person's mm. journeys. And we've seen it happen time and time again, because we've been able to bring this work to communities and workshops Mm -hmm. where we're not telling people what to do or what Mm -hmm. to think, love me, love me, this Mm -hmm. is who I was, this Mm -hmm. is who I am. We're telling people our own true stories, but what Mm -hmm. they see is relationship. Mm -hmm. And our truths seem to hold a mirror up to people where they can see themselves or some of their stories, or compels them to be truthful. Mm. I and mean, we've had some of the most incredible experiences over these past 10 years, mm. where we've seen the transformative nature mm. of this type of narrative mm. work. Mm. And even in our own families, because all of our families have been affected. Mm. In my case, when I arrived home to my parents and said, I'm going to do a play, they were like, yay. And I says, I'm going to do a play. I'm going to be telling people for the first time of." was a member of the IRA. They were absolutely devastated and didn't support me, didn't even come to productions. Mm -hmm. I'm the eldest of six children. There's three older ones, an eight-year gap, and three younger ones, and it was the three younger ones who came and supported me. Until eventually, the documentary of our production came on television, Mm -hmm. The Far Side of Revenge, and I phoned my mother and said, don't be channel surfing because... I'm going to be on TV tonight. Mm. And when I went down to her house the next day, she said, I watched that last night. So I sort of mm. braced myself. Mm. She was devastated at this news that her daughter had been caught up in the mm. area. Ne- they never knew it. It was their first time hearing it. She was also had people in the background telling her, don't be letting Nan go on stage and say that stuff. It's dangerous. She can't do it. and mm. So she was worried about me and, and my daddy. But what she said, whenever I said, OK, what did you think then? She said, I didn't protect you. So it wasn't about what I had done. It was about what she felt as a mother, even though she tried her best that she'd mm-hmm. failed to do. That generated a brilliant conversation. And now she's one of my biggest supporters and is behind me all mm-hmm. the way.
1: One, so of the s- one of the things that Anne's not telling you, and that wee story mm-hmm. there, is that part of the documentary was filmed in her mother's kitchen and my with, without know. her mommy knowing, <laughs> which meant that there were ex soldiers, ex policemen, mm-hmm. and all in her kitchen when she was out? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so my mommy, and she discovered that out? during the documentary. Mm-hmm.
2: But my mommy then, my mommy sort of has gone from somebody who's bitter and angry about losing her brother on Bloody Sunday and the change, the trans- mm-hmm. how that transformed all our futures, to somebody who is gives gone bread to James. He's ex-UDA and has a James in her house, police in her house, Mm. soldiers in her house. She has become the person who brings in the tea Mm. and the biscuits.
0: Mm. So the transformative nature, even
2: in in your grandchildren towards me being in your home. And my son thinks James Greer's the coolest thing since sliced bread. (laughs) And I have a 20-year-old son who was 10 years old when we started this journey. But those kids in our, our... families have come through this with us mm. and they might be on the periphery, mm. but it has transformed them and that's the ripples mm. are reaching yeah. out. Uh,
0: One of the things that we um, talk about quite a lot is just to look at looking at justice from different ways that justice is, we often see it as retributive justice, you know, punishing someone. But uh, maybe a deeper kind of justice is restorative justice. When, and where actually lives and the web of lives that get hurt uh, that get affected in, and in, in, in the in conflicts like like we had, and um and it just seems as you tell your stories about different families and the family coming together and it's like this restoration you know that what <laughs> could have been devastation and um it's and something very beautiful about that and even you finding yourselves each other and the humanity in each other is a very beautiful thing to well we to talk see. about
2: showing people the possibilities
0: yeah.
1: Yeah, uh,
2: mm-hmm. and sometimes all you have to do is look at a group of us, and before we even open our mouths, people yeah. see the relationship, and that's yeah. that, that's amazing. And that's what yeah. I often say that we were afforded afforded the possibility mm-hmm. to sure. do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like James said earlier on, all these bits and pieces are the reasons mm-hmm. that we're sitting here, and the mm-hmm. reasons that we are able to go out and tell our stories and mm-hmm. show. What's possible? Mm. Like I, if I could go back it'd change a whole lot of stuff. There's a whole lot of regrets.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah. we all have regrets. All about regrets that, but, but there's a whole lot you of, know, it's part of your life. Yeah, there's
2: like, but there's a whole of lot well. of hope. Yeah.
0: There's a lot of hope. Yeah. It sounds like a lot yeah. of hope as you're talking. Yeah. I, I wonder, we we've probably gone um as far as we can for now i mean i i I personally could listen to you for a long time Mm -hmm. lovely stories and just you you just tell it so honestly you know um i wonder there's part of me wasn't going to ask this but then i thought you know i do a lot of work with in the religious sphere and i think a lot of those people sometimes don't always hear some of these kind of stories and and um i'm not really looking for a nice little religious kind of thing to end it with but i'd Love to hear one of my life's journeys, I suppose, is trying to help, particularly people in places of conflicts, particularly religious people take responsibility for what's happening and and get involved and not hide behind theology or Bibles or things, but really get involved with people and help them. In your lives, what is what has religion been when you like we were talking about James earlier, joining the UDA with a gun and a Bible, and you know, there's obviously that real kind of harsh negative side to it. Has has there been, what do you think of when you think of faith? And we had a conflict that was all about Protestants and Catholics. Mm. And, you know, do you see anything in it that's been hopeful for you? Is it, or has it just been part of the problem, you know?
1: Well, I turned a lot to the church after Patsy's death mm. and I did a lot of work with the church. Mm. And things like making Tate confirmations and helping the priest and doing doing readings was one of the things that I loved doing. I read at Mass and did things like that. And I did that for a good few years. And my daughter used to say to me, Mommy, you you think you're a nun, the things that you're doing and all this, right? But I was getting, that was my comfort Mm. because I was getting counselling from my daughter, but the church was my comfort at the time. But as I became involved more in uh, the peace and reconciliation sector and started doing work among that. Uh, I was becoming. I wasn't getting estranged from the church. Mm. I just was walking away a wee bit, Mm. you know, and uh, I still would be religious. Mm. I'm not Mm. I'm not a disbeliever or anything like that. And uh, but I wouldn't be as physically involved as I was shortly after Patsy's death and um, you know I talk about uh, things like um, Patsy coming back to me and which he did you know and there are people who say you know you believe in that sort of stuff I says well you have to believe what's in front of your eyes if you see him standing there at the door when you're in your bed trying to read your book and talking to you which what happened to me and different things and feeling Patsy with his arms wrapped around me and things like that. You know, to me, that's a very um, Mm. otherworldly thing, if Mm. you could say it was religious. Mm. I don't know, because Patsy Mm. wasn't very religious. Mm. I would have been more religious than he was. Mm. But um, it's always there in the background. Mm. You know, it's it's Mm. there in the background. And Mm. I'm a believer and uh, I was brought up a Catholic. Mm. And I still have those mm. beliefs. Mm. But uh, my my mm. mind has expanded mm. to other things as well. Mm. So lovely. it's still there.
0: Yeah. Well, you've maybe transcended just the kind of religious boxes to become more fully human, you know, and full, yeah. fully yourself. And Yeah, that's a good,
1: uh, yeah. I, found, I remember that.
2: I found <laughs> I, there was parts of being a Catholic that I loved, but I found it so difficult. I was conv mm. see the guilt. I was convinced mm. from a young age, I was going to hell. I remember crying in bed one night and I think it must have been about 11 and my daddy's sitting down saying, what's wrong, love, are you all right? He says, daddy, daddy, I don't want to die, I don't want to go to hell. He says, you're not going to hell. He says, I don't want to go to heaven either because God knows everything I've done. (laughs) And I remember at 11, as if there wasn't enough to be worrying about. Um, And the guilt that came along with that. Then there was one stage in my life I became born again and that was brilliant until... We moved to a different sort of born again group, and that was really terrible. And it was, and it wasn't the, because I learned so much. Being a born again Christian that I didn't know about God when I was a Catholic, mm. and there was a great freedom in that. Mm. Um, but I'm not practicing because I was not a good Catholic, and I was not a good born again Christian. Mm. And if I was a Protestant, I wouldn't be a good Protestant. And if I was a Muslim, I'd probably be a terrible (laughs) Muslim. So what I have found is that I can't, Mm -hmm. and I have tried my best to deny that there's a God. I've tried it and tried it, but I can't deny that there's a something, that there's a being, that there's a presence, that there's definitely been a hand on me, guiding me, even if it was by giving me a brain haemorrhage or making me bankrupt and losing my house, even if it was the really tough lessons that have brought me down a road that I wouldn't have brought myself down. Mm. There needs, there has to be something. But I have Mm. believed that religion is the... Don't be religious, it gets Mm. in the way. Mm. Is there something bigger than that? My daddy worked in DuPont during all the troubles and there was Catholics and Protestants and there was never much trouble between them because they were all workmates. But there was an argument that the. At the table one night, where they were all having lunch or about to eat, and everybody was freaking out about something or other in the news, and a Protestant man stood up and he said, "Love God, love your neighbour, and everything else will fall into place." Mm. And I think that that's powerful. At yeah. the end of the day, if it's if you can just love, mm. and if you yeah. and it all falls into place, love yeah. the answer, John yeah. Lennon. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah well. Um, I think, yeah, you're you're just, I think, beautifully talking about being human, about loving. It sounds a lot like the best kind of uh, Jesus to me and not a bunch of little boxes and um, things that we've, hopes that we've got to jump through. And it's not a lot of fear. It's not a lot of guilt and shame and all that stuff that just only leads to negativity. Um, and I think... You're both uh, beautiful stories of how, in the midst of devastation, uh, uh, life can come, and that's hope. That's hopeful for me, as I, you know, as I think of other situations all around the world. That there is hope, you know, and uh, yeah. uh, so I want to thank you, Kathleen Gillespie, thank you, Anne Walker, for being here, uh, inviting us up to Derry, and mm-hmm. um, and yeah, just your lives and your example, your honesty, and I hope that as you. You have talked about your own lives. I hope those listening can really experience some kind of degree of healing uh, through uh, hearing your story. So, yeah. thank you so much. Okay.
2: Thank you. Thanks, yeah. Thanks for listening. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>